welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today. We're looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutionary movements in China, starting back about 1839, working forward to the present. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is kind of a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. For the uh, usual announcements, if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. If you'd like to get the show notes, you can subscribe to my substack at chineserevolutions.substack.com. Please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Today we're looking at the foreign perspective on the Taiping Rebellion how their interests, missionary and commercial, were bound up in what was going on, and uh, how they had connections both to government and to rebels. Well, today we're really focusing on one incident in the Second Opium War, which I'll explain in just a moment. Um, It's only natural if a huge, bloody, all-destroying war is going on. It's nice to be able to say, Could you at least keep it out of my yard and not block the driveway? Thanks. Uh, Which is kind of what the foreigners were doing, because they wanted to be able to get tea and silk and things from China, but the Taiping and the Qing forces were looking to uh, eradicate each other. So that makes it awkward to talk to your usual suppliers. There was this weird double reality of the foreign presence in China. They were not quite looking to take it over, but they do have an awful lot of property, interests, rights, privileges, etc., that they insist at gunpoint on keeping. And uh, how this podcast works, I dip into episodes from the books that I base this off of, so we're not going to have systematic coverage of you know, the the issues referenced. Uh, So, you know, like I've discovered this about books and movies. Like, yeah, it's about that event, but it's about the beginning, the end, or a critical thing in the middle. Uh, You know, like if you find something, a people's history of whatever, you know, it's going to have an altogether different emphasis. You know, today we'll dip into the Second Opium War between foreign powers and the Qing. Today we're drawing heavily on Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, China, the West, and the Epic Story of the Taiping Civil War by Stephen R. Platt. Just some context on the Second Opium War. There's another intervention in China, responding to attacks on foreign citizens, foreign interests. Sometimes missionaries and Chinese converts would get attacked or killed. Sometimes Chinese law enforcement seized a ship, you know, so, like, military action was taken to resolve the issue. There were unclear boundaries around which Chinese were covered by foreign extraterritoriality rights, and, you know, which Chinese employers would uh, fight to keep, uh, you know, their... their, uh... Yeah, this is the problem when you're writing notes, is, like... Okay, like, that's not, it's not a script. Sometimes the notes get all jumbled. Okay, so here we go. You know, which Chinese 
employed by foreign companies, you know, which ones they'd fight for and, you know, like if they're running opium, that's kind of illegal, kind of like head chopping off illegal sometimes. And if they get caught, like, okay, so it's, it's not, you know, the foreign company getting, you know, like pushed out of China. It's like you're doing illegal things and that needs to stop. But that doesn't really stop the uh, foreign companies from having the consul send in a gunboat. And, you know, then, of course, there's the desire to renegotiate past treaties, even where treaties were forced on China after the first Opium War. The Chinese were ambivalent about enacting them. You know, dragging things out is one of the few cards they could really play. Like, you know, it's not like they're going to defeat the foreign powers, but it, it but then it's not like they're really in a hurry to do everything that is written in the treaty, whatever the treaty is. Foreign enterprises want more latitude to operate in China, like, okay, they want to sell more, they want to pick up from suppliers deeper into the interior. Um, missionary pressure, you know, was put on governments to get more permission to operate in China. So, you know, so then the, then military conflict would force things further along. So today, the, the incident we're talking about today is May 1858, two years into the 1856-1860 Second Opium War. Uh, a combined English-French fleet off the coast of Tianjin, which is uh, in North China. Uh, Tianjin is the port city for Beijing. Lovely city, if you ever get to visit. Uh, if you ever... Okay, so it's it's right there by Beijing. Beijing is landlocked, but, you know, there's kind of a canal or river or something. You know, if you... If you're in Tianjin... Uh, if you go on your phone to make it function as a metro card, that's something I discovered in my last uh, two or three years in China. Um, so you you can go on your phone and the is it NFC uh, near field communication? So you can kind of make that your metro card. You don't have to carry a, a credit card sized thing anymore to get in and off the sub in and in and out of the subway. The Beijing and the Tianjin metro systems are covered by the same card. And, you know, from Beijing, you can make it a very long day trip there and back or an easy weekend getaway. It's really quite close. Uh, the, you know, so the, so the incident today is the storming of the Dagu forts. Um, these were the most important coastal fortifications in China. The, because Tianjin is the maritime gateway to the capital of Beijing. Uh, I lived for a short time in the small, small town, small, kind of the, it's a city that kind of got assimilated by Beijing called Tongzhou. It historically had been kind of the place from which Beijing would get things coming to and from the ocean. That's, it would come in from Tongzhou to the main part of Beijing. Well, to to get there, you okay? So the the combined English French fleet was not just one or the other because there 
really trying to show themselves as not being all about getting a trade monopoly with China. So it's it's not just the English, it's not just the French. There were also some small Russian and American representations in the fleet kind of observing the action. It's about, you know, we all, we foreigners, we're trying to, you know, get fair trade representation with this country. And um, the... So that's that's why they're acting together, and the uh, the soldiers uh, and the sailors were veterans of the Crimean War, and so they're they're ready to lay down some serious damage, and the the uh, so the so the uh, British and French were trying to show themselves, you know, not trying to just go in all in for themselves, British or French. And so they're trying to, you know, kind of hoping that the Russians and the Americans would get involved. This is actually a fairly consistent dynamic in foreign intervention in China, all the foreign powers at coordinating with one another. You know, on the one hand, you know, everyone can have a piece of the pie. There's plenty of China. You can slice off your own slice. On the other hand, they're trying to take profit out and not take on the cost of empire. So it's like they, they want to buy what they want to buy. They want to sell what they want to sell but they don't want to have the budget of occupying a continental power. So anyway, they bombarded, they took the forts, and after a number of weeks of meaningless negotiations, they they blasted their way in and took over. Um, there was an interesting comment from one of the Manchu negotiators. You know, the troops manning the forts were only Chinese, so it didn't matter what the foreign powers did. I don't know really how to take that. Does it, like, do the do the Manchus figure that they can abandon the capital and run away to their uh, traditional homeland up, you know, in the northeast? So you can't really wipe out the dynasty because they'll survive. But you know, so you know, like they've got infinite Chinese to die for them, and then they'll figure out how to fight back. Well, as we'll see today, this doesn't make the Qing dynasty look very good, this this whole incident. Um, forts, they were built for combat. The, uh, the, the Dagu forts were built for, you know, combating uh, pirates and, you know, not, not really, you know, modern European navies. You know, in the uh, you know during the action, the Anglo-French fleet got around behind the forts and blasted them from behind as well. Also, the Chinese cannon were aimed and then lashed into place. Foreign cannon uh, were much more advanced, and it was easier to you know aim them more precisely. Five hundred Chinese died; three thousand ran away. Uh, a uh, there were a number of interesting conclusions from this action, okay, drawing from Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom. Now the the defenses were more stout than the stackers the the attackers were expecting. Um, the defensive fortifications were more modern than expected. You know, some of the guns were British, salvaged from shipwrecks or secretly bought in Shanghai, and uh, victory was more a question of training than of equipment. So you know one of the things we're going to see as the decades roll on, Chinese military forces are going to become. A whole lot more modern, and they're going to have better discipline. It's going to take a lot of decades, but 
when we get up to uh, the communist handling of the Civil War. Um, also, anyway, we'll we'll get there when we get there. Um, as foreign ships, you know, sailing up the river, you know, there's the thought: Are they coming to depose the Qing Dynasty? You know, if so, was that good news or not for the Han? Uh, are they only coming for forced treaty negotiations? You know, it's an additional humiliation for the Qing dynasty. The foreign motivation uh, in many of these interventions is upholding some sort of sense of honor, avenging perceived slights and disrespect, um, and asserting their equality with China as sovereign states with equal dignity. The trading arrangements, for example, in Canton, were really galling to foreign sensibilities. Like, they were only allowed to occupy these buildings for certain months out of the year. Women couldn't come over, you know, so it's like, if you're married, you know, you you know, if a, if a guy's going to marry a lady, you marry her to be with her and not to leave her in Macau, especially if you're nowhere near China. The... Um, they're only allowed in one little part of the city. It it just it just wasn't great. It wasn't great for them, and so they, you know. But then this will also go into the Chinese notion of the century of humiliation, you know, so that they were disrespected for you know a century. Every side of the Chinese Civil War to come, and the Japanese invasion of China was all fueled by an anti-imperialist message. In the book, The Scramble for China, Foreign Devils in the Qing Empire, 1832-1914, to uh, really goes over a lot of what foreign powers did in China. We'll be drawing on that as more episodes come. Uh, it's amazing how much perceived disrespect will drive you to assert yourself. You know, so foreigners, uh, you know, they were avenging their past diplomatic slights and extreme trading restrictions. And then the Chinese, more recently, with the many decades of foreign armed intervention in China, forcing you know, things to go this way or that way according to foreign interests. Well, this, you know, avenging this disrespect is, is it's, that's some pretty serious stuff to have behind behind you. So after this, this foreign fleet storms the, the Dagu forts. The, they're, they're the first foreign fleet probably ever to sail up the river to get near Beijing. Foreign ambassadors had been that way before, but they went on Chinese terms. If you remember back to the kowtow and other ritual humiliations insisted upon, uh, well, and the soldiers and sailors knew the historical unprecedentedness of their actions. And, you know, as the Chinese locals are watching as this fleet sails up the river, there's kind of bored curiosity, foreign ships getting stuck in the shallow bottoms of the river. They'd throw a rope out to the Chinese crowd and men would help pull them free. Foreign sailors would pay in Chinese money looted from the Dagu forts or with ships of biscuits. Um, you know, sometimes they just throw the money just to watch the crowd scramble for it. Like there was this Chinese copper coin that they you'd keep it, you know, lots and lots of it on strings, and so you, you they they could just fling this out. They looted a lot from the Dagu forts. The overland journey was uh, 
you know, would have been rough for Europeans uh, with, you know, like guns are not light and, you know, carrying all your other equipment. That's, that's all very heavy. In the end, they didn't have to go. Uh, even if you're going the, that, the distance between Tianjin and Beijing with modern transportation, it's not a short trip. Um, getting out to eastern Beijing by car, you know, could be an hour, um, maybe half an hour. Anyway, but directly from Beijing to Tianjin is like two hours drive. If it's half an hour by fast train from center of Beijing to center of Tianjin, but that's fast train. But then you have to make all the transition to the train, whereas, you know, by car you could just load it up with all your stuff and go door to door. It's 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 an all-day thing to go, even by modern, you know, by, by modern transportation. It's, um, so if they're going to walk, if they're going to march from from wherever you you get off uh in Tianjin to march into Beijing it's it, so they they symbolically captured Tianjin and the emperor gave in and sent commissioners to negotiate a treaty and it was called the Treaty of Peace Friendship and Commerce this was the British treaty and then other powers got similar treaties it's kind of easier to talk about the British side because one, the sources are accessible in English and two, it's like everybody kind of pushes and at, at about the same time so like the British get in and then all the European powers want a piece of the pie and then the British push again and the, the foreign powers plus some new ones you know, get a little more so the, the, the conditions of the treaty uh, the pushed for the right to sail up the Yangtze, and eventually, you know, ships would be able to load cargo at a port deep within the Chinese interior, just put straight out to sea, so that that helped foreign commerce. Ten more treaty ports were opened, in addition to the five that were opened and the uh, after the first Opium War. Some of them were along the Yangtze, some along the coast, some on Taiwan. Foreigners are allowed to travel anywhere in China, and this is mostly you know, throwing a bone to the missionaries. Uh, Chinese are not allowed to call foreigners barbarians anymore, and whether or not that was the term, whether or not that was what exactly the term in question meant, you know, something like that can be a major issue if it's not properly explained. If you think of any extremely offensive epithet used for you know, some other race or some religion or something, you know, even if there's some relatively innocent explanation for why this term is used, it, it's like, it, it's too late already. Anybody who doesn't know your language but knows that word, like, it's it's super offensive and you, like, there's just no way to get around it. This This treaty was a major blow to Qing prestige, especially with the last condition, the British forced their, you know, like, this wasn't even negotiated, like, like, they didn't even check with the imperial authorities, but this was forced into the treaty, the the right to station a permanent ambassador in Beijing who would come and go at will, and that meant foreign ships would sail up and down the waterway, be in 
between Tianjin and Beijing, um, which was historically a path for tribute missions from foreign powers to come in and show their respect and uh, you know, they'd be sailing in with flags or other markers of a tribute mission, you know, showing submission to the Chinese emperor. Well, the foreigners now are not going to be having any of that. And the local population would see this. Word would get out. The emperor is not the, you know, the big cheese of the whole world. He's just... I don't know what he is, but he's going to get replaced pretty fast if he doesn't retain this, the respect of the you know Chinese population. Um, the The treaty with the Russians, uh, it, it, they the Russians got chunks of northeast China, including land that now contains the city of Vladivostok. I think the name in Chinese is like Sea Cucumber Cliffs for Vladivostok. Anyway, uh, this is, you know, something that we might want to keep in mind for foreign for modern diplomacy with foreign powers. Feeling disrespected, especially over a protracted time frame, is a major reason why people go to war. Uh, you know, and then depending on how the war goes, the people of a nation fight even harder because of what happened in the war. You know, and the war kind of becomes its own reason. So, if you ever wonder, you know, why is this war happening? Maybe somebody in the right place at the right time felt just disrespected enough to send him in. Like when you look at the first opium war, the reason why I, I believe it was George Staunton argued in favor of intervening in China was not to protect the interests of the opium dealers. It was about British honor. And so, yes, of course, the opium trading companies did push for squeezing reparations out of China so they could get paid back for everything that they signed over to the British guy who made the deal to turn over opium to the Chinese government and all that. But really why the British did it was they felt they had been disrespected. You know, so everywhere from you know, prison today to, uh, you know, the Chinese seacoast uh, in 1839, disrespect or perceived disrespect gets people killed. It gets a lot of people killed. Uh, and, you know, as it turns out, I'm, you may have heard the term unequal treaties. That's a an artifact of later scholarship covering foreign intervention in China. When we get to the 1920s and 30s, we'll start to see Chinese nationalism coalesce and more coherent resistance to you know, the expansion of treaty port settlements happen. But actually, it's even earlier than that. But the, you know, an interesting feature of, imperial, of European imperial activity in China is that they don't take and hold contiguous territory the same way they do in Africa, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, some other places. You know, and so you know, so the you have these powerful foreign settlements on the Chinese coast, uh the the uh you know the Shanghai Treaty Port settlement is it's a fascinating history. It'd be make for a fascinating like immersion computer game or something. Um, so, you know, with the 
kind of light touch, such as it was, that the Europeans had with China, you know, the modern state in China is going to be something that's made in China. It won't be like India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh handed off from the British colonial administration, kind of almost fully formed. You know, but at the same time, foreign armies are going to be running all over China, looting, burning, raping, massacring. Uh, from what I can gather right now, the one thing that will distinguish later Japanese atrocities from the previous you know, ones involving European powers is that it was only the Japanese doing the Japanese atrocities you know, where you know you have Im other imperial powers in there with you, there's kind of some embarrassment about letting the troops get out of hand, or you know how much you're going to blow up unilaterally. Oh my goodness, the uh, the the other guys might see that and uh, might think badly of us or something. Um, Japan was also taking more of a direct colonial, take and hold territory approach in China. And so they were maintaining standing armies in China, large-scale colonization projects were going on, especially in Manchuria. And, you know, they were not buying off Chinese suppliers. They were taking over. They were running their own factories. Uh, the, like, when I took a tour of Northeast China, I saw in the cities of Changchun and Anshan and Dalian. Dalian was especially interesting. Um, in Changchun, the... Oh, shoot, I forgot. Um, Harbin. Okay, so the Japanese had taken over all these cities. They uh, developed... They, they planned out a lot of the urban development. They put up factories, um... One of the museums that I saw in Dalian, beautiful building. It was all designed and built by the Japanese. They they were coming to stay. You had people who thought of Manchuria kind of as their homeland. It was it, it was a real colonial project that they were engaging in up there. And so then when you intend to move in with that sort of permanence, then you're gonna be around to commit more huge atrocities. So, you know, so, so then, not to forget the Taiping Rebellion, which is the main thing we're talking about here. The Taiping Rebellion was a colossal catastrophe. You know, a huge civil war within China. Millions are going to die. And while the Qing are dealing with that, the foreign powers are deciding to push for their treaty rights, you know. I know you have cancer, but could you be a little less selfish and help me with my splinter here? Um, I got it on your floor anyway, so that's that's kind of the the you know the, the foreign powers want their thing, but there's a huge existential crisis going on in the Chinese Empire. The foreigners are trying somehow to be neutral. Both powers in the fight want foreign intervention on their side, and the foreigners are there for business and for missionary work and that sort of thing, not really for anything that China is there for. One of the factors in deciding whether to intervene is who would open up the best business opportunities. So, like, sometimes when the, the Taiping would open up areas for foreign commerce, then they'd 
you know, they'd be getting more direct access to where they would be getting the tea and the silk from that they would trade for otherwise anyway. And, you know, though the, um, you know, so it's kind of interesting that the foreign powers are going to intervene and, you know, attack the Qing dynasty and defeat them, but then they're going to intervene on the side of the Qing against the Taiping. And this, all of this going on is going to cause a major reduction in the prestige and the, and the authority of the Qing, uh, who are the foreign Manchus and not, you know, local Han. And this is going to cause a hollowing out of the imperial dynastic system. Because there's there's kind of two things going at the same time. One is the the Taiping Rebellion is waking up the Han nationality to yeah maybe we'd like to run our own country, but then also uh, the revolutionaries who are going to come along okay they're the they're going to see that the Qing are not able to control their own affairs. They're not, they're not able to keep out the foreign powers. And so as they're taking in a lot of ideas from interacting with foreign nations, they're going to also get on the idea, maybe we should replace the whole imperial system altogether. So today's episode uh, with the Dagu Forts that's it's just one incident, but it was, you know, it's just it's just one more thing in the course of the the Taiping Rebellion that really hollowed out the respectability of the Qing Dynasty as them being, you know, obviously the ones who should be in charge of China. So thank you for coming along for today's episode. Again, I am your host, Nathan Bennett. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can join the Substack at chineserevolutions.substack.com. And please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Thanks again, and catch you next time.